pleasure uh, to welcome you to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Carol Wood, and I have to say this, I don't quite know why, uh, but transcripts are checked, that I'm a board member of the, um, uh, the book festival. It does not mean I'm the director, just a board member, board director of the book festival. And it's with that a, a great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening to this event. We're just delighted um, um, at the book festival to have Dylan William here um, tonight, um, who's flown up from London to join us. Uh, we're just thrilled to bits, really thrilled to pieces, that um, he found time to come and share with us his work in education. He's a fantastic speaker, as you'll, as you'll hear soon. But what he's really done for us, and for the UK, and also he, he has a global impact, is I believe he's, he's put the F into assessment. And that's a wonderful thing to say about somebody, isn't it? And if you don't understand that, um, you'll find out more when I pass you over to him um, shortly. So we're just delighted to have him. He has kick-started um, through his research. Um, he trolled the world for research. And from his paper, um, he produced um, Inside the Black Box for King's College. Um, and he's kick-started a huge initiative, which has gone global. And I know he spent some time in the States as well. Um, on formative assessment and um, he'll tell you more about that. He's now currently back in the UK, came back about a year ago and he's Deputy Director of um, the uh, London Institute of Education and we're very pleased to have him back in the UK because we can um, have him to come up and influence us further. So without further ado, can I ask you to put your hands together and welcome Dylan William please. He'll speak for about 50 minutes and then it will be open to questions on the floor. Okay, thank you. Okay. It's, it's really great to be back in Scotland because whenever anybody asks me about a country that's really taken assessment for learning to heart and actually run with it, I always tell people to go and look at Scotland because I think this is the place where uh, the, the shift from assessment for learning to assessment is for learning really took place. Um, the slides I'm going to use will be available from my website as soon as I get back to my hotel room. And you can download them from my website, which is www.dylanwilliam.net. And if you spell my name with my surname with two L's, you will end up forever lost in cyberspace. <laughs> if you want to know why there's two, only one L in my last name, the first thing I say to people is, well, how many L's do you need? Um, but the real reason is that my mother tongue is Welsh, and in Welsh, double L is actually a separate letter of the alphabet, pronounced <laughs> So that if you actually wrote two L's in Welsh, it would be pronounced William, which is wrong. Okay, so it's www.dylanwilliam.net, and the slides will be there tonight, along with probably more than you ever wanted to know about formative assessment. The structure of the talk, I, I want to talk about why raising achievement is important. I want to talk about why investing in teachers in the, is the answer. I want to talk about why formative assessment or assessment for learning should be the focus of that investment, and why a different kind of professional development called teacher learning communities should be the mechanism for that, and I would also like to then finish with some really practical suggestions about how you can actually begin to do that in your own settings, whether they're schools or other kinds of workplaces. Why do we need to raise achievement? Well, forget inspection and league tables. The reason we need to raise achievement is because, raise it, because achievement matters. If you have high levels of achievement, you actually earn more money in your lifetime. You actually live longer. This research takes quite a long time to do because you have to wait for people to die before you can actually check how long it, but it's, it, it... But they've actually calculated that roughly an extra year of schooling adds about a year and a half to life. Nobody's entirely sure why, 
but you actually live longer and you're much healthier. So it matters to individuals. It also matters to society because those people pay more taxes. They actually cost the health system less and they cost the criminal justice system less. So even in the current situation, we should be worried about raising achievement. But there's a much bigger re reason for raising achievement, and that is because education and achievement is going to be more important in the future than it has been in the past. Fifty years ago, the average working man needed to, neither to read nor to write in the course of a working day. Nowadays, the kinds of jobs that you can do without those kinds of skills are being done by robots or being done in China. If we are going to carry on growing our current prosperity, it will be as a knowledge economy. There'll be some jobs that can't get outsourced, like taxi driving and hairdressing. But for most people, the route to prosperity will be through higher levels of education. If we could actually raise where the, the average student up to, say, where the current top one-sixth are, within 30 years, the extra taxes being paid by those people because they were earning more money would make the whole of compulsory education free of charge. It would more than pay for itself. Typically, investments in education come back five or even tenfold. That's why raising achievement is important. So where's the answer? Lots of solutions have been tried. Smaller schools, larger schools, um, middle schools, getting rid of middle schools, curriculum reform. One of the things that we are blighted by is that politicians need to make a difference in a hurry. The typical politician is in the job for two years. And I was talking to a senior civil servant in London, you know, and if they do well, it's the Treasury, and if they do badly, it's DEFRA. <laughs> so politicians are trying to have an impact, and so they actually keep on announcing policy after policy after policy without ever allowing the policies to work. They're in a hurry, and the point is there aren't any quick wins. So they always go for these things like curriculum reform or textbook replacement or changing the way that schools are governed, like specialist schools or academies as we've had south of the border. Or computers, that's been, you know, computers have been about to revolutionize education for roughly the last 30 years. And as Heinz Wolf once said, the future is further away than you think. Charles Clark actually gave us a wonderful natural experiment because he actually required us to put in computers into every single school in London or through these interactive whiteboards. Yeah? So we actually had an interactive whiteboard in every single school in London. And we evaluated it quite carefully. And we found no evidence of impact. Actually, we found evidence of no impact. There were as many schools where putting in these whiteboards actually made things worse as there were when it made things better because the technology by itself doesn't do anything. It's what you do with the technology. And people say, oh yeah, but with the technology, you also need the professional development. But if you're gonna do the professional development, do you need the technology? The reason we've been misled, or mizzled as I like to call it, the reason we've been misled is because the data that would actually tell us what was going on has not until recently been available. So back in the 1980s, when the government in, in England started requiring schools to publish their exam results, we actually found that some schools got very good results and some schools got very bad results. Conclusion, schools make a difference. And then somebody said, hang on a minute, all the schools that are getting the good results are in the leafy suburbs, and all the schools that are getting the bad results are either in really um, impoverished rural communities or in the inner cities. And people said, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. 
So they actually looked at the poverty and they found that actually demographics accounted for most of the difference in school outcomes. The rather unhelpful conclusion from that was that schools don't make a difference. It's all social, social factors. But as we began to get better data sets where we could actually find out what it was that kids knew when they started at the school and then what they knew when they finished, the value-added approach, we found actually that schools didn't make much of a difference. But classrooms did. It doesn't actually matter very much which school you go to. It matters very much which classrooms you're in in that school. The variability at the classroom level is about four times the variability at the school level. If you're in the one, one of the most effective classrooms, you will learn in six months what kids in an average classroom will take a year to learn. And if you're in one of the least effective classrooms, that same amount of learning will take you two years. There's a fourfold difference in speed between the most effective and the least effective classrooms. And people have said it might be class size. Turns out not to be class size. Reducing class size makes a difference, but not much and very expensively. It's not the grouping strategy. Some teachers like to set. Teachers who like to set teach the class that they're teaching like it's a set, even if it's a stability. And so you actually get those kinds of interference effects. But all of these effects are actually quite small compared to the teacher. That's the crucial variable is the quality of the teacher. And when I talk to head teachers, I always use a, um, a famous legend from uh, my mother tongue, Welsh. It's a legend of a giant called Bendigaidvran, who is leading his troops across the countryside to avenge a slight to his sister. And they come across this big um, gorge with a river at the bottom, and there are these rocks that make it impossible to get across in a boat. And there's no bridge, and it's too deep to ford. So they puzzle for this a, wh a while, and eventually the giant lays himself down across the chasm and the troops walk across his back to get to the other side. And the proverb that comes from this in Welsh is, he that would be a leader must be a bridge. Leadership in schools is not about being heroically leading as a head teacher or a principal. It's about helping every teacher do a better job in every single classroom. Governments don't like that answer because it's very difficult to manipulate that. But the only thing that will make a substantial difference to the quality of achievement in our classrooms is working with every single teacher to help them improve what happens to children in classrooms. So, if teacher quality is the crucial issue, we, it's basically a standard labour force issue. We have two solutions. We can either get rid of the teachers we've got and start again, like Ronald Reagan tried with the air traffic controllers in America. <laughs> Trouble is, it doesn't work because there aren't any better teachers out there. You actually get rid of teacher training courses and let anybody in, you'll find they're actually worse than the people you've trained. And I'll say why that is later on. So if you're serious about raising standards, let me go back and rehearse the argument so far. If you're serious about raising achievement because it's necessary for our future prosperity, you have to invest in teachers. And if you're serious about that, you have to invest in the teachers you've got. What my colleague Marnie Thompson called the love the one you're with strategy. There is no alternative to this. So that's why I advocate professional development for teachers, not because I want to be nice to teachers, because it's the only way we can actually solve this economic problem that we have, which is that we need higher levels of achievement than we currently have. And I don't mean to beat up on schools. Schools are doing a better job than they've ever done. Our school children are more intelligent than they've ever been. Nobody knows why, but average IQs have gone up by about 15 IQ points since the Second World War. 
a kid who would have got into a selective grammar school at the end of the Second World War would be today regarded as below average. Nobody's sure why. Some people think it's diet. Some people think it's TV. Have you ever watched a rerun of Dixon of Doc Green or Dallas? Those scenes are so slow, aren't you? I mean, you know, two-minute scenes with only one plot line, and people, you know, I'm, I'm losing the will to live halfway through this program. So we don't know why, but the point is that schools and students are doing a better job than they've ever done, but the demands of work have risen even faster. That's the problem, is that the jobs that you could do without those high-level skills aren't around anymore. So investment in teachers is the only way, in my view, of securing our future prosperity. So how do we do that? What should we invest in? Well, here's some cost-effect comparisons. Class size reduction. One of the problems with educational research is we've got locked into this idea of does it work? Does, does reducing class size improve student achievement? Yes, of course it does. The question is, by how much and what does it cost? And these data here tell you that if you reduce class size by 30%, and make a class of 20 from classes of 30, you'll get an extra four months learning per year. So those kids will learn in 12 months what kids in the larger classes would learn in 16 months. So you do get extra learning, but it costs you £20,000 per classroom per year. You have to increase your education budget by 50%. Now, people talk about teacher content knowledge. Teachers don't know enough content. Okay, let's look at the effect of increasing teacher content knowledge. What we find is if you could make a teacher increase from weak content knowledge to strong, you would get an extra two months learning per year. It's quite a small effect. And there's a question mark in the cost column because nobody has managed to do this yet. If you focus on assessment for learning and support teachers in making this a regular part of their classroom practice, you get an extra eight months learning per year and it costs you £2,000 per classroom per year. So I don't advocate assessment for learning because I like it. I advocate it because it appears to be the most cost-effective solution to the challenge we have to raising student achievement. The data about the size of the effects comes from several reviews of the research, and we're quite lucky in education, in this branch of education, because the research is now quite well organized. We've got, but those papers between them summarize about 4,000 research studies. And they all provide consistent, substantial effects. So it's a quite well organized body of research that we know that it actually works in different subjects, in different countries, with different aged children. But what is formative assessment? Well, I think one way to think about it is to think about three key processes, which is knowing where children are in their learning, being clear about where they're going, and about how to get there. This is not rocket science, it's very straightforward. But if we think about the role of the teacher, other peers, and the students, we get this kind of table, where the learner is going, where the learner is right now, and how to get there, the role of the teacher, the peer, and the learner, and we get what I call these five key strategies. Clarifying and sharing learning intentions, engineering effective discussions, tasks, and activities that elicit evidence of learning. You might call that questioning, but I think it's much broader than that. Providing feedback that moves learners forward. And there's these two boxes that we used to call peer assessment and self-assessment, which you may be familiar with. But I think those are very narrow ways of thinking about this. And we've broadened this considerably now into activating students as learning resources for one another, bringing all the stuff about peer and collaboration, and activating students as owners of their own learning. 
Those five strategies collectively, I think, define the field of assessment for learning. If you're doing AFL, you're doing one of those. And if you're not doing one of those, you're not doing AFL. Um, so this is my creation myth, if you like, for why these are the five important strategies. And we can go down and unpack them in terms of the research. But I think that um, I won't spend any more time on that. I'll just take that for granted. So these five strategies really provide a focus into a whole range of other issues. I'm going to try and walk out your way. But I'm going to try and walk without getting feedback from this speaker over here. So the first strategy, which is clarifying, understanding, and sharing learning intentions, brings in curriculum philosophy. What do you mean by mathematics or English? The second one, of course, brings in um, the classroom discourse, interactive whole class teaching, feedback, obviously, is straight, brings in all the research on feedback. Activating students as learning resources for one another brings in all the research on um, collaborative learning, on reciprocal teaching, and on peer assessment. And the final one, activating students as owners of their own learning, brings in all the stuff on metacognition, on motivation, interest, attribution, or self-assessment. So I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but I'm saying that they're not the primary focus that we should be having. The really important thing is to focus on assessment for learning, because then it allows us to get into all these issues in a productive way. The big idea here is that a teacher should adapt and adjust their teaching to take into account student learning needs in real time. We call that keeping on learning on track. I flew up from London this morning. Just, would have, just imagine what would have happened if the pilot had navigated the way that most teachers assess. The pilot would have set off from London, heading vaguely northwards, with a planned flying time of one hour, five minutes. And after one hour, five minutes, we'd just set down at the nearest airport and then say, is this Edinburgh? And if it turned out to be Glasgow, he'd say to us all, I'm sorry, you have to get off because I've got another job to go on to. So that's what we do, isn't it? We teach kids stuff, and at the end of the teaching, we work out if they've learned it, and if they haven't learned it, we say, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe next time. Because <laughs> we'll do it again next year. Because we always do, don't we? Not so much a spiral curriculum for most kids as a circular one. Round around the same stuff until, until they get it. So a teacher who's determined to keep learning on track plans a carefully chosen path, but then takes constant readings along the way and adjusts their teaching as conditions dictate. Now, the problem is that this, this term of formative assessment or assessment of learning has been appropriated by politicians who try to bottle it. And, in, and, in, and certainly south of the border, it's very much around marking kids' work, putting scores into a spreadsheet, and tracking that they're making the right kind of progress. But what I say to that is that if you, leave, if you let the children out of the classroom before you've made adjustments to your teaching to take into account their learning needs, you're already playing catch-up. And if you haven't made adjustments by the time they next appear in your classroom, it's too late. So it's not about that month-by-month -month tracking of student achievement using Excel, which is very easy to do, but actually totally, uh, totally irrelevant. It's that minute-by-minute and day-to-day adjustment of teaching. It's that small cycle stuff. That's the stuff that actually has a real impact on student achievement. Okay, so, if it's so easy, why aren't we all doing it? Well, the problem is not knowing what to do, it's actually doing it. I don't know how many of you in the room are teachers, 
But the problem with teaching is that most of us learned most of what we know about teaching before our 18th birthday. The research on parenting shows that you get to be different as a parent from the way you were parented in a maximum of three ways. You can say, I'm never going to do that to my kids, I'm never going to do that to my kids. But in the emotional pressure of parenting, you just rely on the scripts of parenting that you actually experienced. Those, those scripts are learned at a very deep level. And in the same way, teaching, unless you reconstruct your practice, teaching as an activity relies on the scripts of school that we internalize the students the, because the pressure is so great that you just rely, rely on those scripts. And so the real problem is that the models of professional development that we have are completely inadequate for that kind of change. If we're serious about helping teachers change, we have more to learn from Weight Watchers than we do from most current professional development. Because Weight Watchers understands that what it's trying to do is to change habits. Not, not, I mean, the point is that most people, most people have in their heads already all the knowledge about what they should be doing. That's not the hard part. The hard part is actually doing it. And changing your teaching is just as hard because actually teaching is habitual. That's the problem. Sorry, uh, um, the other thing that's interesting is that experience alone is not enough. If experience alone made teachers bet as better as, they, as good as they could be, then the most experienced teachers would be the best. And that's not true. Teachers get better for the first five or six years, but actually after that, most teachers plateau in terms of how much learning their children do. Is that serious? No, not really, because you wouldn't expect anything different given that all the professional development we've been doing has been wrong. Herding teachers into rooms like this and having people like me talking at them passes the time and can be reasonably entertaining, but it doesn't help you change practice. Because what happens is you go back, you get all fired up, and you just go back to your classroom, you try something, it works the first time, try it the next time, it goes wrong, and what do you do? You go back to doing what you know how to do. Teachers always say to me, I've been here before. Of course you have. Because we haven't addressed the fundamental problem, which is how you change habits. People need to reflect on their experiences in systematic ways that build on their experience. And that's not just me being, you know, talking about this aspect of learning. This is actually how all learning takes place. We're beginning to learn that this is how human brains work. So our model for teacher learning is first of all start with the content. Be clear about what it is you want to change or help teachers change in their practice. And then work out how to do it. The trouble is that most professional development is the other way around. They have models like coaching. And coaching is very big in, 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 in uh, America and in Britain these days. And people say, what do you think about coaching? And I think, I say, well, about what? Because you can get really sucked into coaching around things like VAK. For those of you who are not in education, this is a big jargon. Visual, aesthetic, uh, visual auditory and kinesthetic learning. Um, there's multiple intelligences stuff. There's um, brain gym. Very interesting ideas. Not a shred of evidence that supports impact on achievement. And so you, you can try that if you want to. I'm saying the stakes are too high. I think it's too big of a risk. When you've got something like assessment for learning, which actually has this proven impact on student achievement, why would you take the risk of doing something that may or may not have an effect? So that's why I resist the idea of coaching as being a good idea. Coaching is a good idea if you are clear about what it is you want to coach. But the trouble is the most coaching models say to teachers, well, what do you want to change about your practice? And they might come up with a smart idea, and they might not. And that's too risky. 
And the other thing is, coaching only works for certain kinds of change. If I wanted to increase teacher content knowledge, I wouldn't use coaching. Coaching is a terrible way of increasing teacher content knowledge. Much better put them in a classroom and teach them stuff. But if you're trying to help teachers change their practice, get rid of these habitual ways of reacting in the classroom and replace them with new ways, then I think coaching has some, some mileage. The trouble is it's too expensive. Giving every single teacher a coach would be a great way to actually to change practice, provided the coaches were focused on assessment for learning. But we can't afford it. So what can we do that might actually have some chance of scaling across 100,000 classrooms or a million classrooms in America. Well, this is the model that we think we, we need. We, first of all, you need to give teachers choice. Teachers adapt things into their own practice. If teachers don't integrate things into their own practice, they're gonna stop doing it as soon as you're watching, as soon as you stop watching them. Teachers need flexibility because they need to adapt things to fit in with their own personal styles. They need to be able to take small steps. You push teachers to push, to go faster than they wanna go, and they'll humor you when you're around, and then when you go away, they'll stop it and go back to doing what they know how to do. <laughs> because you want to integrate, because they won't change the way that their standard operating procedure. You need accountability. I think you need to make teachers accountable for change. I think teachers, should, every, I, think, I think it's reasonable to say to every teacher, what are you trying to do differently this year? Why? I'm not saying, well, I, I, I am saying you're not good enough as teachers. Yeah, I am saying you're not good enough as teachers, because nobody ever is. The great thing about teaching is you never get any good at it. You show me somebody who is, who is happy with how well they're doing, and I will show you a teacher with low expectations of their students. Our constant experience is, a fail is failure. Because we have these unreasonably high expectations of children. We, have these, we, we are convinced we've explained something with a lucidity that is almost unimaginable. And we look at the work the kids do and say, what? <laughs> yeah? The reason we need formative assessment is because learning is not predictable. It's the old behaviorist model. You know, basically, the old behaviorist model was we will actually help kids make the right connections, and what we teach is what they learn. I don't know any teacher who spent more than a nanosecond in the classroom who believes that, because those kind of idealistic beliefs get shot out of the water pretty quickly, don't they? What they learn is not what we teach. That's why we need formative assessment. We need to be constantly monitoring that. But because this is, so I, I think it's okay to make teachers accountable for changing something in their practice related to assessment for learning, but I think you also then have to provide the support to help them do it. Now, what we've done to try and help this, we call this problem the tight but loose problem. Yeah? So you, you've heard the Crosby, Stills and Nash reference, love the one you're with. This is the Led Zeppelin reference. Led Zeppelin described their music as tight but loose. The challenge we have in working across a million classrooms in America, or you know, 200,000 classrooms in Britain, is how do you make something loose enough to allow teachers to find themselves and actually make it their own, but tight enough so that they don't completely eviscerate the intervention by doing what they want to do? It's that, so that, 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 that's the tight but loose problem. And the, our approach to it is to make a clear distinction between strategies and techniques. So the strategies, the five things I talked about earlier, those are no-brainers. They're always a good thing to do. But how you do it with a particular class is a technique, and that's the teacher's choice. The teacher has to choose which of those techniques. So what we did was we actually developed, the, from these five strategies, we developed 
dozens of these techniques. I'm going to say a bit more about some of these techniques in detail in a minute. The key requirement is that they embody the important principles that the research shows about learning, that they're relevant to teachers, that they're acceptable, and that they're actually feasible. Teachers have to be able to do this in practice. So let me give you an example. So for example, how do you clarify and share learning intentions? Well, one way, before you get kids to do a story, take four stories from last year's class, anonymize them, and give them to the kids and say, which are the good ones? What's good about the good ones? What's less good about the less good ones? That's a concrete technique you can actually put into practice straight away. Now, whether that's a good idea to do with those kids or not would be the teacher's choice. Because we're not going to say it's definitely going to work, because it might not work for you. Eliciting evidence using many whiteboards. So when I was a teacher, the, the question I asked myself most often was, can I move on? Do I need to go over it again, or can I move on? How do I find the answer to that question? Well, I would make up a question on the spur of the moment, ask the class, six kids would put their hands up, I'd choose one of them, and they'd give me the right answer, and I'd say, good, <laughs> and move on. Now, how stupid is that? I'm assuming that there are 29. Now, what's going on? Yeah? And there's another trap here, which is this whole idea about intelligence. The research on intelligence shows that actually, I mean, you, you know that, you know that uh, environment causes intelligence? A little bit, anyway. What's interesting is that intelligence causes environment. People choose for themselves cognitive niches that match their preferred level of functioning. It explains why IQ becomes a better and better predictor of people's job performance the older they get, which is quite the opposite of what you expect, isn't it? You expect it would be, be less important. But actually, people choose for themselves jobs that actually match their preferred level of functioning. And we need to interrupt that. It's why programs like Head Start in America worked, because what they did was force kids to work at a higher level than they would have chosen for themselves. Now, look at the typical classroom. What's going on there? Well, you've got some kids who are trying to answer every single question the teacher asks. Yeah? And you've got other kids trying to avoid being asked a question ever. Why is this serious? Because those kids who are actually trying to answer every question are actually getting more intelligent. You can actually show that their IQs are actually going up. And the kids who are avoiding that engagement are, are foregoing the opportunity to get smarter. So if you allow kids to choose whether to answer in your classroom, you are actually making the gap between the lowest and the highest achievers greater than it is already. You're exacerbating the achievement gap. So even if you don't use some sort of all student response system, like getting every single kid to hold up a, a, a mini whiteboard, you sh must use some form of randomized questioning, picking on kids, picking on kids whether they want to answer or not. Yeah? And of course, they find that very scary. Kids say things like, don't know. What they really says, I'd rather not think about this, thank you. That's their opening. Your opening move was to pick on a child. Their, their immediate response is, don't know. What are you going to do? Well, you could actually say, okay, but I'm going to come back to you. Get as many different answers from kids as you can and come back and say, which one do you like best? Don't allow that kid not to think. Another move I've seen very successfully used when you know that child is actually not bothered to think. And I've seen, it's amazing that it works. But I've seen a teacher say to them, yes, but if you did know, what would you say? <laughs> and 
And it's amazing how often just that extra time and the fact that the kid realizes they're not going to be able to get away with not without answering actually gives them time to come up with an answer. So we need to be more systematic about eliciting evidence. We need to get evidence from every single member of the class before we make those important decisions. Providing feedback moves learners forward. Yeah? Now, everybody wants feedback. Yeah? In the days before I gave up trying to lose weight, what I mean good, I wanted feedback. I know you're meant to weigh yourself once a week, but after a day on lettuce, you want to know this is working, don't you? <laughs> so you get on the scales. And if you've lost weight, you feel good and you don't want to eat. But if you haven't lost weight, even worse, you put weight on, you get depressed and go looking for a cake shop, don't you? <laughs> See, I understand the psychology. I want that feedback, but I only want it if it's going to be good. And I don't know if it's going to be good until I get it. And that's the trap we've got into. So we stop, have to stop giving kids grades, which just perpetuate that cycle, and we have to start giving kids feedback that puts the onus back on them. So for example, one thing that the maths teacher said to us, you know, you, you told us we mustn't give grades, but if we tick 15 of these things as correct and five of them as incorrect, the kids can work out for themselves they've got 15 out of 20. And we said, why don't you just tell the kids that five of these are wrong, find them and fix them? Yeah, always feedback that puts something back onto the learner. So when you're correcting a final draft in a piece of writing, put a dot in the margin every time there's something incorrect and needs attention. If you want to make it a bit more differentiated, you can put a P if it's a punctuation mistakes, S if it's spelling, G if it's grammar. You might actually underline the word for a very weak student. But the important thing is that feedback should be focusing the student on actually engaging cognitively with the work rather than just an emotional reaction about did I do well or not. Um, Activating students as owners of their own learning. One teacher, a maths teacher this is, um, she gives every single kid three colored cups, red, green, and yellow. The lesson starts, the nest is so that the green cup is showing. If a child thinks the teacher's going a bit fast, they show the yellow cup. And if a child wants to ask a question, they show the red cup. You would have thought, why would anybody want to show a red cup? Well, because the rule is that if somebody shows a red cup, the teacher picks at random one of the students showing green or yellow, and they have to come up to the front of the class and answer the question asked by the kid who showed red. There is no place to hide in that teacher's classroom. Not only do students have to be monitoring their own learning, but they have to be communicating it to the teacher. But you're actually putting students in charge of their own learning and responsible for being honest with the teacher. And finally, activating students as resources for one another. We've got lots of techniques here, but one of them we call the pre-flight checklist. The idea here is that kids, um, kids have a checklist of things they have to do. So, so we, and then, before they hand the work in, a buddy has to sign off on that. They need to be quite procedural things like, you know, you know, you know how science teachers obsess about underlining of titles and diagrams labeled in pencil, that kind of thing? So before I can hand this in, I have to get it signed up on my, on my buddy. And if I hand it in and our buddy signed off on it, and there's some things that they should have spotted, it's my buddy who's in trouble. Yeah, so you have to take that job seriously. So these are, these are some, some techniques that we've given to teachers to help them come up with these broad principles. But we're not going to guarantee they work. They might work, you know, putting kids' names on lollipop sticks and choosing them at random might work very well with P3 classrooms, but it might not work with S5. Or it might. Because you pick a kid, an, X, an S5 kid at random, what's the first thing they're going through their mind? Why are you picking on me? And if you've used lollipop sticks, the answer is, it's your unlucky day. Deal with it. Now, what's the answer to my question? 
The important point in all this is that because we're interested in helping teachers change what they do in the classroom, we've actually changed the traditional design process. Because the traditional design process is that a researcher has some effective insights, which they actually then try, I've actually got this thing out of the research, I try to give it to you as knowledge. And you, it's useless to you because it doesn't actually translate into classroom practice. So what we've done is to take this knowledge, put them into a set of, uh, a set of components by actually matching them together, and we give the teachers the set of components, and they integrate them into their own practice, and they actually then change their practice, and then change how they think about the practice, and therefore change their thinking. As Millard Fuller, the guy who founded Habitat for Humanity said, it's generally easier to get people to act their way into a new way of thinking than it is to get people to think their way into a new way of acting. And that's what we've tried to do in teaching. Too much professional development in the past has focused on getting teachers to think their way into a new way of acting in the classroom. And that's just too slow. And it's often not even possible. Whereas if you start with a new way of acting, then the thinking can catch up. So, as I said earlier, we're changing, we've got to change habits. So, that it's, so the old traditional model just won't work. Piling people into a room like this five times a year and telling them stuff doesn't work for changing habits. So we've got to come up with new models. And that's, uh, that's just a slide that confirms what I talked about earlier, the fact that you pick up your models of teaching from your experiences as a student. So we think that teacher learning communities, small school-based groups of teachers who meet together regularly to help each other make changes in their practice, I think is the way to go. And there's a, whole risk, there's a whole list of reasons why that's a good idea, but I mean, you can read those later if you have the interest. Uh, we've tried doing this, and we've found that it works. This is the, this is the, the, this is, this is the book bit. There's a book <laughs> called Assessment for Learning, Putting it Into Practice, available from OU Press, Open University Press, um, which describes the work that we did in Kent and uh, Oxfordshire. And what we found was that basically, where the teachers were doing this, the kids actually learned at twice the rate of the other classrooms in the school. We doubled the rate of student learning. What was really interesting was the teachers actually went slower. They covered less of the syllabus, and their kids got higher exam scores because they actually took the kids with them. So how do you take it for scale? Well, so what we think, that the, what we've learned out of our, I mean, we've tried now something like 15 different models for teacher learning communities. And this is, the, this is the sort of distillation of what we come up with. We're not sure this is the best model, but this is the best model we've come up with, and it's better than the other 15 we tried. So um, ideal size is 8 to 10. Too few people, you don't get enough interesting discussions, too many, and not everybody is accountable for actually doing something in the meeting. Meet monthly. Why monthly? We found that every three weeks is probably not enough time to actually get into your classroom, try something new out, and come back ready to talk about it. And if you do every six weeks, it, the, I think the impetus drags somewhat. And time between meetings for collaborative planning and peer observation. The really valuable thing is to buddy up with somebody, and they come and watch you teaching, and you come and watch them teaching. The really important thing is you have an action plan, where you actually say, this is what I'm trying to change about my teaching, and you have that person into your classroom to tell you how you're doing. Sometimes you need exceptions from school policies. So, for example, if the school policy is there must be a grade on every piece of work you mark, well, that's a really bad idea. 
I mean, any school that has that as a policy is actually getting worse results than it could do by just not grading. But, you know, parents like grades and, you know, schools are there to keep parents happy. You know. So it's difficult to change. But it's often possible to get away from this kind of policy as an experiment. What we discovered is that for the, if, you have, if you're going to have a, find a two-hour meeting every month, what we think is that this is the best structure we've come up with. So the first thing is five minutes of introduction to housekeeping. We call this getting your heads to the meeting. One of the things we often allow teachers to do is what we call the 30-second whine. Every teacher at the group is allowed 30 seconds to sound off about all the things that is bugging them about this school. If you don't get that out of the way in the beginning, it'll keep on coming up right throughout the meeting. Then how's it going? This is interesting. 50 minutes. Why? Because everybody has to be accountable. And teachers said to us, they thought it was really stupid being made to promise. But in fact, if you, don't, if you know that the meeting's going to run out of time and you don't have to actually report back, you won't prioritize doing what it is you're meant to be doing. And every teacher has told us that they thought it was really stupid being made to promise what they were going to try out. But the fact that they knew they were going to be held accountable by their peers at the end of the month is what made them made that a priority over all the other things that were important. So 50 minutes just kept saying, how's it going? What did you try out? How did it go? And all the group tried to help them with their change task. Then new learning about AFL, you might watch a video, you might read a, do a book study, you might read a chapter of a book, you might actually take a government publication and dissect it. But some ideas of keeping something new every, every, every time. 10 minutes then, personal action planning. 10 minutes before you leave the meeting, individually, thinking about what are you going to do between now and the next time with a clear and, and, and that promise gets made public and then finally reviewing the, the meeting so this group needs a leader you need a leader to make sure that the meetings happen that a room is booked that there are refreshments there and all, all those other kinds of things but the really important thing is that that person is not there to be the assessment for learning expert our experience is that when you have an assessment for learning expert in the room, they take over and tell people what to do. And it's almost invariably less successful than when each individual teacher has a change plan for them. So it's more like Alcoholics Anonymous than it is like, to, you know, you can't be there unless you're trying to, trying to make these changes in your own practice. And you're not there to tell anybody else what to do. You help, you're there to help them do what they want to do. It's about re-professionalizing teachers. teachers have to do it for themselves. Only you can work out how it is that you can change. You can't do it without, unless you're exceptional, without the support of your colleagues. But you must resist the, your colleagues telling you what you ought to be doing. You should be in charge of your own professional development. Finally, a quick word about peer observation. This must be run to the agenda of the person being observed, not the person doing the observation. Too much of this stuff is management, top down. I'm coming to watch you teach so that I can tell you what you're doing wrong. What we found is that when the person who is being observed specifies what the person should look for and what evidence to collect, it's very difficult for them to introduce their own agendas. So if you say, I'm trying to increase my wait time, here's a stopwatch, measure it. And whatever that prejudices they have about what you ought to be doing, if they do that, then that'll be useful feedback to you. So as I said, Earlier, there's this tight but loose formation. What we're saying is that we, are, um, we have an obsessive adherence to the central design principles of those five strategies. You can't do AFL without those five strategies. So we're tight about that, but we're loose about how you do it, provided it's defensible within those strategies. So we're, we're tight about giving you choice. 
We're tight about the fact you have to do one of these five strategies. We're tight about how's it going in every meeting. And you can't leave the meeting without action planning. And we're tight about the size of the TLC. If the TLC gets too large, then you run out of time and somebody knows that if they haven't done anything, it'll be okay because they won't get around to me. We're loose about how the meetings happen, whether they're in school or out school, school type techniques, how you fill in that new learning slot, and how you make up the TLC, whether it's subject specialists, whether it's different people, that's up to you. So to sum up the argument, what I've argued is that raising achievement is important, and if we're serious about raising achievement for our future prosperity, the only path to that is through investment in teacher professional development. The cost-effectiveness analysis shows that if we're serious about investing in teacher professional development, the focus of that investment should be on changing classroom behaviours around assessment for learning. It has something like 20 times the cost-benefit trade-off of class size reduction. But it's hard to do. So we need new models of professional development. Professional development models that assume that what's wrong is what teachers are doing, not that they lack knowledge. Teachers don't lack knowledge. Teachers have got all the knowledge they need. What they don't have is ways of putting this into practice in their classrooms. So this is where the teacher learning communities come from. And we think this combination of AFL with teacher learning communities is a uniquely powerful point of leverage into uh, the practice of teaching. And it provides a lifetime change agenda. You will never run out of ideas on this front. You will always be able to actually continue to push yourself in developing it. And it, it's not a replacement for, but it's a Trojan horse into the wider issues of pedagogy, psychology, and curriculum. So I'll stop there and invite questions. We've got um, what the system is here. We've got a roving mic. So if you wish to ask a question, if you want to raise your hand, and as we a second for the mic to come, and then everybody can hear. So who would like to? Any questions? One guy at the very front. It would be, of course. <laughs> You touched briefly on the learning environment, and I would just like to know a bit more about that. Um, you just briefly mentioned about the learning environment affecting learning to an extent, and I just would like you to—I don't know—to just develop that. A bit Which further. point in particular? I'm not sure because I wasn't sure entirely what you meant by the learning environment. I would like, you know, kind of specifics. Did you mean the physical environment, the um, mm, okay. policy, or you know? I just wanted more explanation okay. about that. I think what I meant was the kind of cognitive environment that you create in your classroom. So it's what the rules of the game are, what the rules of engagement are. I find the notion of classroom contract very, very in useful in thinking about this. Every teacher has a classroom contract, whether they know about it or not. It's usually settled by about October. <laughs> because by, by October, you know how much work you're going to get out of each class for the rest of the year, don't you? And so you have these kind of negotiated settlements. That you, re that, you, that you reach. And so it's about those things about whether it's fair to pick on kids who haven't raised their hands, for example. And so if you allow kids to opt out of the learning, then that's, you've, you've had an impact on the, on the cognitive environment. So it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. So it's nothing, nothing to do with physical environment. It's to do with whether participation is in, my, in this classroom is compulsory and whether it's um, at a high level of cognitive engagement or whether it's about recall and all those kinds of things. That's the, that's the crucial thing. Basically, the question is how hard are kids think? If you're more tired than the kids at the end of the day, then the wrong people are doing the work. <laughs> yeah? So that's why people joke that the, you know, schools are places where kids go to watch teachers work. 
Yeah? So it's about you know, who is doing the intellectual heavy lifting. And it should be the teacher and the students rather than just the teacher. Another question from somebody? There's a question that I would quite like to ask you, Dylan, uh, and that is um, formative assessment has, has really been working throughout the UK for the last few years, very much kick-started uh, kick by um, your work at King's College. Is there any research about the impact to date of you know, everyone in every school seems to be having uh, assessment for learning right in the middle of the development plan? Mm -hmm. is, is there any, is it too early for research? I mean, what's the impact of, of the changes so far? I think what I'd say is that we are continually frustrated by our ability to communicate to people what we really mean by this. Because people say, yeah, yeah, we do all that. And we go and watch them and they're not. So there's, that's why I think it's a lifetime change agenda. So for me, let me give you an example, okay? Um, when I work with groups of teachers, I break them, you know, we have little discussions, we break them up and then we bring them back together again, okay? Now, one way to do that is to say, okay, can you all come back to me, please? And you shout for about two minutes and eventually the teachers will listen to you, okay? And what I decided was that just wasn't working for me, so I introduced a technique, which is that I would raise my hand and I would expect every person, when they saw me raise my hand, to do two things. One easy, which is to raise your hand, and the other is very hard, which is to stop talking. Okay? It took me three years to actually make that a part of the way that I do things. I, I, you know, I, I did it when I remembered to do it, but you know, after two years of doing this, I still found myself sometimes saying, okay, can we come back now? And nobody heard me. I said, why did I do that? I've already told them I'm going to raise my hand. I just thought it was quiet enough to, for this to work, and it didn't work. But after three years now, I never do anything but that. But it took three years to really make that a part of the, my, my teaching. So that's what, what I think, people are kind of using these things, the little gimmicks and the little ideas, and they said, have you ever had that idea of... There's a risk of that, yeah. Have you ever had that, that, that experience of hearing somebody suggest something and you say, Oh yeah, I used to do that. I don't do it anymore. I wonder why I stopped, because it was quite a good idea, really. Why did, you do, why did you stop? Because you never focused on it long enough to make it part of the way that you do things without thinking. It never became a habit. I think that's the challenge. It's how do we make these kinds of things a, a, a habit? So that, for example, we never say, for example, you know, do you want to, do you want to answer my question? I decide whether you're going to ask my question or not. Yeah, it's changing those habits, and I think there's a huge amount of work still to do in in that kind of in that kind of really getting down to making it a part of standard operational procedure rather than just something you do when you remember how to do it. We, we all we all have a huge way to go, uh, but that's great because teaching would be really boring if you know how to do it. It's, it's, it's terribly boring to have a job that you can actually do without any struggle. Okay, let's open it out. See if there's any more questions. One at the back there, please. Uh, I'm one week into my teaching career. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Welcome. I know, I know, but uh, one, of, one of the things, I've, I've just come from a year at university, and the big thing they talked about was formative assessment at university. It was a fantastic idea. So they entered the classroom, Fully these wonderful ideas, but straight away I've been hit with schemes of work. This is what you've got to get through in this amount of time. And I was very interested in your comment earlier about 
covering less but getting better results from it. Now, yeah. what concerns me is in the classroom, I'm under pressure to cover X, Y, Z, 1, 2, 3, A, B, C. How can I sort of get the results from the, the pupils that you're talking about but still cover the work I need to cover? Well, first of all, <laughs> first of all, people always say to me, what about, the, what about doing this in, in initial teacher training? And I, so I actually say, forget it. Because passing initial teacher training is about control. It's about keeping things down. And it's very difficult to say to people you should open things up as well as close things down. So you have a set of personal decisions to make about how strong you feel and whether you're willing to try to buck the system and actually risk failing probation or something like that. <laughs> Um, which is why you never tell teachers what to do. The other crucial thing is you need to actually have a very... I mean, people always worry about subject knowledge when teachers are questioning, but if a teacher's really interested in finding out what kids think, they don't need subject knowledge. They can actually listen to the kids and say, hmm, let's, let's discover this together. Let's go and research it. The really, the really important place where subject knowledge really matters is in knowing what the big ideas are and the bits that can be left out. So I was talking to a science teacher and he said to me, that he now spends much more time on the particulate nature of matter. Because if the kids really understand that, they can make up to answers to questions they've never seen before and have a stab at getting it right. But it's really hard understanding what those really big ideas are. And so, you know, I think we have to take small steps. Because we might, you know, if you're not really familiar with the curriculum, you might actually leave out some really important big ideas rather than the trivia. And so I, I, that's why also we encourage people to take small steps because you can actually you know, just try dropping a topic or try to think about a topic as a subset of another topic. It, those, those small moves to give you a little bit more time while you're still finding your feet in the classroom. Um, but don't go for faster than you're comfortable with, because uh, otherwise you'll just resort to, you know, things will fall apart. You know, it's a bit like asking a golfer to change their swing in the middle of a golf tournament, isn't it? It's, it's disastrous. Yeah? So you have to make small steps, go the speed you're comfortable with, and make those small adjustments. And uh, as I said, it's a lifetime's, it's a lifetime's work. There's a question We've got time for one last question. Maybe down here. Um, I really liked your analogy with Weight Watchers because I understand about breaking habits and things. Um, but I suspect that the people here don't really need to hear the message about habits because they're, they're thinking and developing and doing these things already. And it's very, very frustrating I might be controversial, but we all know bad teachers in the school and the ones that need to change. Um, but it is very frustrating to work with a colleague who refuses to change and refuses to listen to the message. I, I would say start with Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in your school. Start, don't try to convert them. Start by doing what you want to do. And what we, often, what we sometimes find is the children can be wonderful ambassadors, like saying to a teacher, How's giving me a B and nothing else going to help me improve? Or a wonderful example we saw, which is, a which is two girls, this was um, sort of S2, I think, saying to a teacher, look, miss, we've told you we haven't understood this. Why are you going on to the next topic? Because yeah, they've been taught the previous year by a teacher who really engaged the students. And they would not let the, this new teacher go on to the next unit because they hadn't understood it. Yeah? So I think if you create within your classroom a cadre of students who really are in control of their own learning, they will force those other teachers to change or leave. <laughs> Either as a result. I think on that note, um, we'd really like to thank Dylan William for a fantastic 
and inspiring um, session tonight. Um, we're, all, we're all agog, and I have told Dylan that he was the first author from the festival to be sold out. Uh, and that's quite impressive, isn't it? They went like that. These tickets were like gold dust, and no wonder. So can we put our hands together and thank Dylan Weaver. For me, just um, remind you, Dylan um, mentioned that his website, if you go onto his website, which apparently he said he's going to do when he goes back to his tell, so you can track what time he gets back tonight, <laughs> these um, materials will be available, which will be a very good download. Thank you very much.